Good morning, afternoon, and good evening, baseball fans, and welcome to episode two of the Diamond Digest podcast. This is your host, Jordan Lazowski, and for returning listeners, welcome back. For newcomers, I'm glad you could join us. I'll be joined by a new crew tonight, so I'm going to let them introduce themselves before we begin. I'm uh, Zorian Schiffman. I'm a freshman at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Uh, I'm a massive Cubs fan. I'm originally from Chicago, um, and at Miami, I'm the uh, I'm a student manager, uh, and I work with scouting and advanced analytics for the baseball team there. I'm Ryan Rudy. I'm a Cubs fan and a Royals fan. I am a senior in high school in Illinois, and um, I swim and I play water polo. My name is Peyton Nelson. I'm a Yankee fan, Bronx native. I'm a freshman at Sony New Paltz, and Miguel Aguilar was rookie of the year. Uh, false. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell Peyton's a Yankees fan? Anywho, let's get this show on the road. <laughs> Our first topic tonight is the winter meetings, which for the second straight year was slower than Manny Machado's home to first time. I'm kidding, relax. Relax, I'm a Sox fan. White Sox fan, that is. But seriously, for a second straight year, the winter meetings ended up being a time of many rumors with very few high-profile signings. So, gentlemen, I'm going to turn it over to you. Let's start by giving me one word to describe this year's winter meetings. I would say misleading. Um, Just because there were a lot of rumors out there, a lot of crazy trades that were all over Twitter that never actually came into fruition. And I think that uh, when you think about uh, how teams are looking to improve pragmatically, I think that from the beginning, um, the way that some of those trades and some of those rumors were reported um, could have been a lot better uh, in terms of making sure that there was a legitimate framework for the dealer the signing before it was all over Twitter. I'll tell you what, Sox fans were having a big issue with uh, confirmed rumors. There were at least a <laughs> few people who claimed to have some uh, background information on either Harper or Machado. And they've become hallowed on Reddit, and they are not legit, which is becoming an issue because people continue to retweet them. So I will agree with the misleading part. I have been misled many a time. Yeah, I mean, I would say to continue that sort of train of thought, uh, underwhelming could be kind of a similar word because, you know, there's some huge free agent names out there. We've mentioned Machado, there's guys like Harper, and... um, you know, with with all the winter meetings, there weren't really a lot of big signings other than like Andrew McCutcheon going off the board. But it's a time when you expect kind of a lot to be going on. And like you mentioned, it was almost all rumors. Yeah, I feel like especially since Harper's hometown is in Las Vegas, I feel like all of the foundation and kind of the framework was set for him to make a, a big announcement and make a splash during those one of those four days. But um So I would agree that it was definitely underwhelming to see the lack of activity. I'm going to take it a step further and say stressful because you're sitting there, you're waiting for all these moves. You're you're waiting for Machado and Bryce Harper to sign somewhere. You're hearing all these rumors about how the White Sox could get them, then the Phillies could get them, then Yankees might not get them. And your head just spinning around like what is going on in baseball right now yeah 
having the uh, winter meetings fall during finals week is a sick joke that someone decided to create. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I I spent more time on Twitter during this past what week? Well, a couple weeks ago, that entire week than frankly I should have, considering how things turned out. But <laughs> anywho. There's three trades, or moves rather, that went down during the um, winter meetings that are really more of the high-profile ones, in a sense, simply because Harper and Machado didn't fall off the boards. Uh, We'll start with talking about Andrew McCutcheon. So we know that the Phillies have been connected to many an outfielder this offseason between Brantley and Harper and McCutcheon, and they landed McCutcheon on a three-year deal. Um, so gentlemen, let's talk about that a little bit. What does that move mean for the Phillies? Obviously, it doesn't mean they're out of the Harper race, as we've uh, heard throughout the past couple weeks since the winter meetings. But what does this move mean moving forward? I think it was it was definitely, you know, it's not the big Bryce Harper that they want. But if you look at Andrew McCutcheon, and obviously there's been, you know, he hasn't been the same um, over the later stages of, of his career. Um, but that being said, he is still a guy who is a very serviceable outfielder. Um, he's 32 years old, which is, you know, he's, he's not a young player anymore, but he's, he still has um, at least, you, know, you would think, four or five more years left. Um, he's been pretty uh, consistent production-wise. Uh, last four years, um, has not had a WRC plus that dropped uh, underneath 100. And his defense isn't what it used to be. Um, but that being said, he's he's a, he's you you can't under um, under account for his uh, his like the veteran presence that he'll bring in the clubhouse um, for a decently young uh, Phillies team at least how it stands now um, and just he he's gonna be um, a much needed presence in the in the middle of the Phillies order that, that uh, they've been lacking in the last couple of years. Absolutely, and I would say it sort of you know it gives the Phillies a little more push into contention because they were up there for a lot of 2018 but they kind of fell off and so with a player like McCutcheon it gives them that push not only on the field but kind of uh, mentally or like uh, emotionally so they are obviously in pursuit of uh, guys like Machado now and so that sort of really puts a statement on their uh, desire to contend and I think it also, while you mentioned it doesn't take them out of the Harper sweet stakes, they've been seen recently with uh, a heavy pursuit of Machado. So it might kind of clarify which of those guys they they prefer. Or, um, I mean, Machado uh, definitely seems to, to slot in a little bit more easily than Harper now. And one last thing I would say is from McCutcheon's perspective, Zorian mentioned he's 32. He's starting to get up there in age. So the fact that he agreed to a shorter term deal, like three years, kind of shows that he has faith in himself to continue performing. And if he wants to get a career or a contract later in his career after this, he he believes that he'll perform up to the level where he would be able to to get that contract. So Zorian, you brought up something I'm actually kind of curious about as a fan of a rebuilding team, and that's the concept of a veteran presence. And you had said that hey, a veteran presence is super important. And a lot of people on Sox Twitter have said, I can't wait till the day until we don't need to call signings veteran presences. So I'm curious, as all of you are fans of contending teams, teams that have experienced recent success, 
what is the value of a veteran on the team? Is there such a thing as a veteran presence on a contending team? Um, I would say um, it's definitely, you know, yeah, obviously when you have younger guys who the more, obviously the more they play with each other, um, the more they're going to develop a chemistry and be able to kind of have the whole, you know, not only gain uh, experience, but be more comfortable in the clubhouse and be more comfortable. I think one of the most under underrated or undervalued things about what a veteran can do is that a veteran is not afraid to, you know, to not not necessarily criticize in a bad way, but to, you know, to give constructive criticism to a player and to reach out and not only be, you know, a coach, uh, kind of like another coach, you know, on the field in the dugout, but kind of in life too. I mean, you know, we sitting here, um, you know, doing this podcast are are just are just a few of the you know millions of baseball fans across the globe that have absolutely no idea what it really is like to play in the major leagues and uh, that that tiny percent of people that are lucky enough to play in the majors they're the only ones who can really relate to that grind of uh, of an 162 game season and when you're talking about some players that are coming up now when they're not even 20 years old that could be very very uh stressful to deal with not just physically on the field but also in life and having to um, take all this new stress and everything all these new implications of being a, a professional baseball player into account so I think that that's where regardless of how the game advances and whether players are going to start coming into the majors younger now and and the you know the average age will maybe decrease I think that having a veteran presence will always be important for that reason of being able to kind of not only serve as a mentor on the field but off the field as well I can talk from a Royals perspective a little bit. Um, so I think I think you make a valid point, Zorian. But well, and also in in recent years, obviously a lot of teams that are competitors sort of need that presence of older guys that have more experience. But I think it's also there are examples of teams that work without that sort of veteran presence. And I would say in like 2014, 2015, the Royals were an example of that. Because uh, in 2014, they, you know, a lot of their roster was still younger and less experienced, especially in the postseason. And they went all the way to World Series Game Seven with really the only guy on their roster that you would consider kind of a, a veteran guy is like Jeremy Guthrie. And so even in 2015, when they went and they won the World Series, they had the experience of all those guys who were on the roster in 2014, but still, they're young guys who don't have. You know, a lot of them are still under 30, and so they um, they had the postseason experience to an extent, but they still didn't have the full perspective of a guy who's, you know, more advanced in age. So it is an important thing, but it's not necessary. Teams can win without it. Um, just a quick follow-up question. Um, was it I, – I might be mistaken, but uh, did the 2015 Royals team, um, that they still had um, Morales and um, – and, uh, Alex Rios, right? Still. Uh, I think they in twenty fifteen they brought on Morales, yes, and also Ben Zobrist midway yeah, through ben the Zobrist. season. Um, uh, Alex Rios, I think, was with them in twenty sixteen. Let me check real quick. Oh no, never mind. He, yes, he was there in twenty fifteen, um, but he wasn't a huge contributor he played 105 games but he was uh 
yeah, not terribly valuable. But still, I mean, in terms of, yeah, in terms of veteran presence, it theoretically doesn't matter a ton how you play on the field other than for your kind of credibility and what you're praising. Right. I will say that, you know, you look some at some teams like, you know, the 2016 Cubs, for example, and how they rode on David Ross so much as this huge presence for them. When it was Rizzo, you'd see videos of him talking to Ross all the time. So I see both sides of it, as well as, Ryan, you mentioned the Royals of 2014 and 2015. Um, I was just curious from a non-competing team's perspective, what it looks like once your team originally, or eventually, rather, begins to compete. Um, So let's jump back into the winter meetings a little bit and talk about two other major moves. The first being the three-team trade between the Rays, Mariners, and Indians. So in that trade, the Indians got Carlos Santana and Jake Bowers. The Mariners got Enwin Encarnacion and a competitive balance draft pick. Uh, this was from the Indians. And the Rays got Yandy Diaz and Cole Sulcer and a player to be named later. This player would be from the Indians. So we already know the story of the Mariners are shredding salary. They're rebuilding even after winning 80-something games last year. What does this move look like from the perspective of each team? Uh, I think that the priority for the... Uh, for the Indians this offseason was to, um, you know, improve their financial flexibility and, you know, relieve some salary. So I think that um, this trade made sense for them. Um, I, I don't think they necessarily liked Bowers better than uh, Yandy Diaz, but I think that um, as a left-handed hitter, um, he fit, who can, also, um, who can also play the outfield, I think that he kind of fit better with them and um, the opposite could be said for the Rays. Um, I do think that it's a bit um, bit surprising that the Mariners have held on to Edwin Encarnacion for as long as they have. Now, obviously, that being said, um, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that he won't be elsewhere before opening day, but um, it is strange to see a team that um, seems to be so committed to rebuilding take on a pretty um, pretty large salary there with Encarnacion. Yeah, I agree with that. It's interesting kind of the implications there, especially because, you know, it's sort of the bigger, one of the bigger moves, especially of the winter meetings. And, you know, the names aren't huge, like big name trades. Encarnacion obviously uh, is a big impact guy, but beyond that, they're, they're all younger guys that have mostly potential. So um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, especially that that's, one of the bigger things that that went down there. I will say I'm glad to see Encarnacion get out of the AL Central for a little bit. Um, (laughs) Everyone seems to kill the White Sox, so the fewer of those types of guys we got in the division, the better. The third big move, I guess we'll say, high-profile move, rather, of the winter meetings was Charlie Morton signing with the Rays. Uh, Two-year deal worth $30 million. This is a pretty big big move for a small market-ish team like the Rays. Not even small market-ish. Small market team like the Rays. Um, But it's actually pretty surprising to see him get this good of a deal from a team like the Rays. I agree that it comes as a sort of a surprise, but I think it absolutely makes sense for for both parties. Um, The Rays are, you know, they were quietly a solid contender in 2018, 
they had a lot of younger guys that contributed a lot to them, especially Blake Snell winning the MVP. So to fortify this, the pitching staff behind him uh, will only help them as they move forward and, and look to keep contending even in a division tough as the AL East. And I think it also, you know, like we mentioned, the veteran presence, Morton, he, it's a little bit of a risk given that he's 35, but he also brings a lot of experience, especially with the Astros, who have been a very good team recently. So he has experience in that culture and he can sort of uh, bring that. And then for Morton, uh, like I mentioned, he's, he's a little bit older, so it's, it's good for him to command that kind of deal uh, at this stage of, of his career. Yeah, it it was definitely surprising to see him, like you said, um, at this stage of his career, leave uh, Houston, especially, you know, considering the sentimental value he has. You know, he was the one that threw the last pitch of the uh, 2017 World Series. Um, But, I mean, I think it just speaks to the Rays' future. And, you know, their front office has always been uh, challenged financially, uh, but um, they've been kind of, um, they've had to work against the grain. They've had to figure out new ways to win uh, with the opener strategy being the latest uh, example of this. So I think it just speaks to the fact that the Rays now have a legitimate future to pitch to their free, to free agents. And it's not just, oh, come to the Rays and you know, you're going you're gonna to play a lot and whatever because we're kind of a middle-of-the-pack franchise. I think the Rays are finally going back into win, true win-now mode. And uh, they have still some exciting young players that haven't reached the big leagues. They obviously have a lot of exciting young players uh, at the big leagues, including um, Cy Young Award winner Blake Snell. So I think that this is definitely um, – it, I think it's more than just Charlie Morton going to the Rays. I think it is the Rays finally having um, – tr- or truly committing to, to winning now, which is, which is good to see. Yeah, I totally agree that it's a refreshing deal to see. Uh, for the Rays. Before deciding, Blake Snell was the only real starter for the Rays. So this brings him the veteran presence, as you guys mentioned. Um, and Charlie Morton is still a very good starter. Last season, he went 15-3, 3. 3.13 ERA, 3.5 B-War. Um, that's a very good one-two punch of rotation. And then the last three spots are just openers. This is a sneakily very good signing for the Rays, even if it is like $15 million, which is a bit much. I am curious to see, um, you know, we've talked about a lot about the Astros effect, kind of. You know, the teams seem to, our players seem to go to the Astros, and guys like Cole and Verlander and Morton kind of resurrect a little bit. I wonder, moving forward, what Charlie Morton's going to look like over the life of this deal. Is he going to continue to be as good as we've seen, or will this be more of a proclamation of just how good the Astros' coaching staff is, that as soon as they leave the program that they're on and start a new one with the Rays, or any other team for that matter, what type of player they begin to look like? Does the aging process speed up? Whatever it might be. But that might be something interesting to consider moving forward for the Charlie Morton deal. That's also, I, I agree that that's interesting to consider, especially because Morton and Verlander are both up there in age, so their success with the Astros is kind of, I'd say, a little bit unique uh, in that regard, that they're able to sustain it that late. I, I think that uh, that is a great point, um, and it just speaks to uh, the phenomenal coaching in the Astros organization, top to bottom. They uh, 
they they do have a, a significantly um, unique way of evaluating players that I've uh, looked into a little bit. Um, that is that it's really interesting. But um, I mean, look at Cole in, in Pittsburgh during his 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 last couple of years um, was mediocre at best. Uh, Verlander looked like he was way past or not past his prime, but not the same during his uh, last years in Detroit. So it definitely um, it, w- it definitely will be interesting to see if Morton can continue that success in Tampa. Now, these obviously aren't the only three moves that went down during the winter meetings. So to kind of finalize the recap of them, I guess everyone can take a chance and maybe pick one move you really liked that wasn't one of these three moves, as well as one that really surprised you. And we'll kind of go around and talk about those. Yeah, so as the uh, the resident Royals fan, I, uh, I'm going to talk about the, them, the Royals bringing on Billy Hamilton, uh, which is the bigger bigger name that they added as well as bringing back Terrence Gore on a major league deal. Um, so I would say them bringing back Gore isn't surprising, but I am a little bit surprised by their addition of Hamilton. Um, and these two deals, they really fortify the speed of the Royals. They, they add to the Whit Merrifield, who was the leader in the MLB in steals last season and Adalberto Mondesi, who stole like 32 bases in 75 games, I think. Um, so these guys, you know, really as a combination, they're four of the top tier guys in terms of speed and, and base stealing um, all on one team. So they threatened to steal over 100 ba- 150 bases just between the four of them in a season. And this total has only been eclipsed by an entire team once uh, by a team other than the Royals since 2013. So bringing these guys on offensively is interesting because they're neither of them are good on base guys, and Gore only even has 19 career plate appearances in the MLB. But if they can reach base, they'll be especially dangerous on the on the base pass, um, and that'll make the Royals a really interesting team to watch if they can really find success this way, because it's something that you know the value of the stolen base is going is going down, and so while defense is still something that's really important. The Royals might be a really unique team if they're able to find success in this way. And bringing these guys both on one-year deals, um, they don't have a lot of money or commitment to them. So if it's not something that works out, it doesn't really harm the Royals since they don't look to contend too much in 2019 anyway. So they're both really interesting, and I, I like the signings overall for the Royals. Yeah, I, I definitely agree, that, um, especially in the, in, uh, the AL Central where uh, Detroit will not be relevant for a long time. Um, you know, the White Sox have a very promising future, but they're um, are arguably still, even if they do make a big signing, will not be um, not be true contenders next season. I think that the Royals, um, you know, this was a team that had a winning record in September. Um, now you, like you said, you're bringing in Hamilton and Gore, who don't seem like huge additions, but uh, speed is something that stolen bases in general have gone down a lot. But um, you know, it'll be now Yost will definitely have a lot of weapons at his disposal. Um, and then on the pitching side, I think that people overlooked the fact that um, that Brad Keller, I would say your uh, average baseball fan doesn't even know who he is, but um, if, if he qualified, he would have been uh, seventh in the American League in ERA. And, I mean, Jorge Lopez also showed uh, flashes of brilliance. You, Jakob Yunus wasn't great, but he also uh, showed that he could be a, a reliable middle-of-the-rotation starter. So I think that the Royals are one of those teams that um, – Again, they don't have a terrific farm system, but they still they've got some young players that they were able to get a look at um, look at last season that should definitely give Royals fans some hope. Yeah, 
And it's also really interesting, like you mentioned, with the sort of strategy of Ned Yost. Um, I mentioned the, the only one team other than the Royals stole 150 bases in a season, and the Royals did it in both 2013 and in 2014. Um, so stolen bases are definitely a part of their agenda a lot more than other teams. And with these guys, they've shown some promise. And while they're not established, the Royals might be better than people are expecting this season, which is the goal of Dayton Moore. It's why he's holding on to a guy like Merrifield rather than trying to, to swap him for value right now. So with these signings, the Royals might quietly be, uh, a, more interesting and get a lot more attention than, than people are expecting for this season. I thought that the best move um, that I've, I've seen actually probably so far this offseason um, in terms of a true team need uh, would probably be Joe Kelly to the Dodgers. I mean, if you look at the L.A. Dodgers are under more pressure as a franchise than, than any other team, not only in the MLB, but I, if you're just thinking about any sport, um, currently just in terms of needing to win now they've obviously um they've been to the world series the last two seasons and have come up short but when you look at you you know you dodgers fans can pick apart um certain you know weaknesses of each of these dodgers teams that have that have come up just short but the, the kind of the common trend that people have overlooked is that you know the dodgers have had great great starters they've had great rotation depth but bridging the gap to kenley jansen has historically been a major issue in the postseason I mean, 2000 and, uh, 2016, um, in game one of the NLCS, that was a game the Dodgers were ahead, and they ended up blowing it um, at the hands of Joe Blanton, who, again, that, uh, who I believe they had acquired earlier uh, that season. But in the, in the postseason, do you really want to um, put your, your team's fate in the hands of guys like Blanton, guys like uh, Ryan Madsen, who had a couple of uh, poor outings, um, last season, guys like Josh Fields, who blew up, um, I believe, in Game 2 of the 2017 World Series. Um, guys um, guys like um, sorry, guys like Dylan Floro, Brandon McCarthy as well. Uh, these are guys that, you know, are solid in terms of the regular season, maybe. Um, you know, especially Floro, who kind of, who's actually uh, waived by the Cubs. Um, but when you're looking at the postseason... I think that when you look at just even the last three World Series winners, they all had not only a dominant closer, but at least one or two guys that were reliable to bridge the gap to that closer. So I think that the, the Kelly to the Dodgers um, will be very, very, very helpful to them. Uh, in terms of the most surprising move, I would say, uh, again, it hasn't really been talked about much, but uh, Patrick Wisdom to the Rangers uh, for Drew Robinson. I thought that that made absolutely no sense for St. Louis to make that move. Uh, wisdom burst onto the scene uh, at the end of last season with a 141 WRC plus. Um, yes, it was a limited sample size, but he showed that he can play um, at the major league level. He is a little bit of a late bloomer at 27 years old, but um, and and the Cardinals do they don't necessarily have a hole in the infield, especially after they acquired Goldschmidt. But this is still a guy that um it, it, they they probably could have if they did want to trade him they probably could have gotten a lot more in return for him so that was a little bit of um i, I did, um just a little bit of a weird move to me to get, to give him up for Drew Robinson who really I don't see having any type of uh impactful role for the Cardinals either next year or in the, in any type of future a move that I really like was the Yankees signing Jay Jay Happ um he did really well um, for the Yankees 
um, towards the end of the season until that one, the one game that really mattered, game one of the ALDS. So angry about that. Um, but before that, he was 7-0, 2.69 ERA, 2.1 B-War. Um, and the one thing that, that stands out to me is that they didn't have to give up top prospects like Estevan Florio or Miguel Andujar for, for a starter. Um, Hap fills, fills the need. Hap fills the need perfectly. Um, Yankees never didn't really need another ace. They just needed another like mid-rotation starter, and Jay Hap is the perfect guy for that for two years. Um, most surprising and one that I really don't understand is the Rangers signing Lance Lynn to a three-year, $30 million contract. Because last year he showed that he cannot pitch in the American League. Um, overall, he was 10-10, 4.74 ERA. But with the Twins, which is a much less, who plays their games in a much less hitter-friendly park than, of course, the Yankees, he was worth negative .6 war. And the Rangers are giving him $30 million for one reason. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. And just to add on to what you were saying about the, the Yankees a little bit, um, I your point about they don't need an ace is definitely right. You know, they already added Paxton. Plus, they have uh, Tanaka and Severino, who are both very, very solid top rotation guys. So the addition of Hap, it really just fortifies the bottom of the rotation. Even if he's not quite as valuable as he was before, he's a solid guy and uh, he he really makes the Yankees rotation. Their top four guys are all all very solid starters, so they they're a pretty dangerous rotation. So let's close the book here on the winter meetings. There was a lot that went down, and thankfully, even the smaller moves got the hot stove cooking. And we do have some other happenings around the league since the winter meetings. One of the biggest ones being the rich getting richer when the Astros signed Michael Brantley to a two-year, $32 million deal. This obviously gives them a lot more stability, as if they needed any more, at the top of the lineup, and continues to make them the team to be in the AL West. So, gentlemen, what do you think this team mean, or this move means for the team moving forward? And do any players seem to become more expendable for them? Uh, I think that, you know, the Astros, they, they, you know, they brought up Kyle Tucker for a brief stint of time at, uh, at, at, um, at the end of last season. Um, but he, he did struggle a little bit. Uh, obviously, they see him as the, uh, the outfielder of the future for, for them. But they still, besides, um, besides George Springer, they didn't really, you know, the combination of, you know, Jake Marisnik and Tony Kemp, um, who really play, could, could play all over for them. Um, I think that they weren't really satisfied with that. And so bringing in Brantley to a short-term deal um, imp- obviously will vastly improve their lineup um, for the next two years, but also, you know, gives them the option of, you know, not not necessarily blocking t- Kyle Tucker. Um, that being said, I do think that, that uh, Kyle Tucker is, um, is still, is still, could still, still be considered expendable to them. Um, when you look at the Astros, um, at least for next season, two um, two kind of holes stick out, and that would be at uh, the the rotation after Verlander and Cole, and then at catcher. Um, so you know you you could you could offer Kyle Tucker to the Marlins and try to get J T Realmuto, um, but I think that 
it, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad move for the for the Astros to refuse to offer him in this deal because um, I think that if they hadn't won at all in 2017, there'd be a lot more pressure to win now, and they would be willing to be a little bit more desperate um, in terms of uh, valuing future versus present. But because they have that championship behind them, and because they are still a uh, legitimate World Series contender as their roster stands right now, I think that um, it wouldn't. I, I could see. I, I could see the argument either way for trading or or holding on to Kyle Tucker. I think it will be interesting to see what they do at the end of that rotation as well. Um, I still think teams are going to wait to move on Real Muto until his price comes down a little bit because we saw what Jeter was able to not get last year when he gave up an MVP in Yelich and then Ozuna as well. He didn't get what he thought he was getting. Then I feel like it's very much like this Real Muto trade where he's expecting to get too much right now and teams aren't willing to take it. Yeah, well, I think I think for his image, he's... Uh... He's trying to maybe recover from that a little bit. You know, he, uh, like you mentioned, he traded Stanton, who was an MVP before that season. He traded <clears throat> Yelich, who became the MVP, and Ozuna um, were the three biggest names that, that he got got rid of. And the return from that was kind of underwhelming for a lot of people. So I think with his asking price for Real Muto, he's trying to take kind of the last piece he has left and, and make up for that and really uh, establish his reputation a little bit more. As a, as a serious GM. And the market is starting to establish itself for Real Muto in not a necessarily great way because the New York Mets made one of the other big moves recently and they signed Wilson Ramos to a two-year $19 million deal. Now we know Ramos has been pretty solid behind the plate, both in framing terms as well as offensive terms. We know also that... The catcher position has been underwhelming in recent years in the MLB. And we also know that Yasmani Grandal, who is considered the best defensive catcher in baseball, does still not have a contract. So when you've got two guys in Real Muto on the trade market and Grandal on the free agent market still available, what does this move with Ramos say about what type of deals those two guys might go for? I think that uh, the... the the Ramos signing for the Mets was um, definitely a bargain for them. Um, you know, his um, AAV um, at $9.5 million um, is a million and a half less than Matt Harvey's um, that he got from the Angels, which I think, considering how, um, how much of a kind of, uh, how much of a glaring gap there is between the top catchers in the MLB and everyone else, um, I think that's saying something about what teams are valuing this offseason, because in theory, it should be the catchers that are getting the big bucks this offseason just because of the demand for catchers that can, that can you know, produce and be above replacement level players. Um, but I think that the Mets needed an, um, an option at catcher um, beyond the likes of Travis Darnot and uh, Kevin Ploiecki, and they got their answer at a really good price. Um, I think that uh, Grandal will, um, would fit well with the Angels, um, especially, um, but there are other teams that would love to use his services. Um, but I, that being said, um, it's just, it, it's, it's, I think it's still surprising to see that catchers, um, that a guy like Wilson Ramos, who has been outstanding the last couple seasons, uh, was not making more money. Yeah, I think this is absolutely a move that establishes the market for catchers. Um, obviously Brian McCann went to the, to the Braves first, but 
like you mentioned, Ramos, a guy of his caliber going for for such a bargain contract, definitely seems to indicate that the catchers aren't going to be valued as much in terms of the deals that, that come in return for them, either like a, a contract for a guy like Grandal or in a trade for Real Mudo. So, um, and the other implication is that the Braves and the Mets were two of the most robust teams in the market for catchers. And so they both have now addressed their need for that. So now um, the the deals for guys like Real Mudo or Grandal are going to come from teams who were not in pursuit of a catcher as much at the beginning of the, the offseason, so they may not be willing to offer as much also. I think another big problem is the fact that there's at least a few teams, White Sox in particular, that I can think of that may be kind of in a market for a catcher, but on a shorter-term side. Because I can at least speak from the White Sox perspective and say, we've got two guys in our system that we really don't know much about yet because they haven't been able to play at the major league level, but we think very highly of them. And signing these guys to big-time, let's just say $20 million a year deals, it just doesn't make sense right now at that price for a guy like Grandal because we, we still don't know what we have. And that might be the case for many teams. Grandal is the defensive catcher that a lot of teams desperately need. But I don't think the $20 million mark is what's going to get it done at this point. Absolutely. And the other thing about it is catchers obviously sort of have a, a shorter shelf life than a lot of other positions because it's a, a brutal position to play for a full season. And so with the, you know, the careers of guys that are playing now, like Buster Posey, Salvador Perez, they're solid catchers, but they start to fall off and become less valuable at a much quicker rate than players like, you know, other position players who have more longevity at their positions. So teams aren't going to be as willing to commit longer contracts to those guys if they don't feel like they're going to get the back-end value off of them with their decline. That's actually a really good point about the back-end value. Yeah. I I also think, you know, uh, Jordan, you were mentioning uh, the two catchers in the White Sox system that they think highly of. Uh, I think that, um, you know, if, 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 you know, front offices are smart, they're going to start seeing the trend um, that we've seen recently is that these top catching prospects are coming to the big leagues and they're just not performing well. Um, you know, the, the last, the last um, few catching prospects that, um, of note that kind of are disappointed, if you look at uh, Jorge Alfaro, he was deemed to be a guy who was, um, you know, going to hit around 260, 270, 25 homers with outstanding defense, and only the defense has been there. You look at um, Austin Barnes of the Dodgers. He's been, again, good defensively, but hasn't really. I think I'm pretty sure. I believe he had a negative WAR last season. Uh, Chance Cisco of the Orioles, another guy who um, they brought up last season, didn't really do much. Um, so when you have these guys that are being deemed you know, the top catching prospects in the system and, and you, know, um, catch, you know, notoriously catching prospects um, ha- are even taking longer than most other positions to ascend through the minors because of how demanding of a position it is, especially to play at the major league level. I think that the value of a major league ready catcher who is proven um, still is way, I believe, way above, um, you know, a nine, $9.5 million um, AAV which is why I would say that if the White Sox are looking to contend, 
maybe not this offseason, um, but next offseason, they should think about investing in a catcher. And if that means that they you know, have to part with, um, with, uh, with Zach Collins or, or someone like that, that's, to me, that is justifiable from the front office standpoint just because um, of how, not only how volatile the position of catcher is, but um, when you look around the league and these other teams who are choosing to hold on to their top catching prospects, and it's not really been working out for them. No, that makes sense. And I think one teams or one thing teams have to really try and value is okay, what's the value of a great defensive catcher but a subpar offensive catcher versus the other way around? Um, I think we're starting to see a lot more catchers. Like you mentioned a few that hey, they're great defensively, not so great offensively. But with younger pitching staffs, that might be something that teams prefer in the long term. We won't really know until we start to see more. Uh, young prospects come up, more young guys continue to develop, and then also seeing what this market looks like for guys like Rondell and Real Muto before we can really see, okay, obviously you prefer a catcher who can do both, but if you can't get one that can do both, which are teams preferring? And that'll be interesting to see moving forward. Yeah, but the one thing I don't understand is how is Wilson Rollins making $9 million a year and Lance Lynn is coming off the market at $30 million? That doesn't make much sense to me. Well, then you have Matt Harvey, too, who's making $11 million, so maybe maybe the it, it's kind of hard to compare the two markets in that maybe the market for a back-end starting pitcher is a little bit different in value than the market for a catcher at this point. I think that was the biggest surprise, for, at least for me, because I would expect it to be the exact opposite of what it, it's shaping out to be right now, because... I mean, the market for back-end starters, if you would have told me, you know, coming this offseason, I would probably guess that Matt Harvey would be making maybe 3 or $4 million a year next season because of, you know, how, how, how many options, you know, teams looking for a back-end starter have. You know, Matt Harvey, Trevor Cahill, Lance Lynn, Clay Buckholtz, Irvin Santana, um, just so many uh, available options. You know, Anibal Sanchez, who signed today, another example. Wade Miley, another example, who's still unsigned. These guys are would be you know would be serviceful back end guys, but the fact that there's so many of them, you would think that it would be kind of that whole supply and demand concept. But right. obviously, the Angels um, and the Rangers um, saw that um, that you know Harvey and Lynn's values, I, I guess, are much higher than that. Uh, what you would think, but um, it's it's definitely interesting um, to to see that. That uh, like you were saying, Peyton, um, a guy like Lance Lynn, who's been mediocre at best, is is going to make more money next season, and for the next uh, two seasons than than Wilson Ramos. Yeah, and teams are, they're they're kind of predicating those contracts. I would say the Angels and the Rangers with the Harvey and the Lynn deals on the pitchers that they used to be. You right. Know, Matt Harvey is is four years removed from his very solid seasons in twenty thirteen and twenty fifteen, and um. The Angels, you know, he's still, he's still only thirty. The Angels, they they see some value in him, um, that that they think is worth that contract, which isn't, you know, breaking the bank. It's it's a decent value contract, but it's not massive. Um, so it's, I mean, it also obviously, um, with respect to the needs of every team, is how much they're willing to pay for different things. But it, I think maybe not the Lynn deal so much, but with Harvey, it's definitely justifiable that the Angels might see um, the same Matt Harvey that, that contended for 
Cy Young Awards not not too long ago. And I think the starting, you know, Peyton talking about the starting pitching market, it gets a little bit more complicated when you consider the fact that, and moving into our next big topic on other happenings, is that the Indians are still considering a trade of Kluber, and the fact that the Dodgers, Brewers, Phillies, and Reds are among all the teams interested. So we actually have a fan question here we're going to throw in once in a while. This is from our own Connor McGonigal. Which suitors for Corey Kluber intrigue you the most? And do you think the Indians will actually trade the former Cy Young, especially when you consider the free agent market that we're starting to see? I am most interested by the Reds um, thrown in with that group of suitors because you see Phillies, Brewers, Dodgers, those are all teams who were contenders or fringe contenders. I mean, you see the two NLCS teams in the Brewers and the Dodgers and the Phillies who have a rotation with Aaron Nola, Jake Arrieta that they can sort of fortify with Kluber. But with the Reds, they're kind of, they're interesting because they're in the NL Central, which is, um, which looks to be a really tough division with the Cubs and the Brewers returning at almost the same strength and the Cardinals fortifying themselves. So, you know, the Reds have already added Tanner Rourke and now to look for a guy like Kluber um, indicates that they're really looking to have a strong rotation and, um, you know, that's that's kind of been their weak point. They have solid position players in uh, Joey Votto, Eugenio Suarez, um, so they they really, I guess, see themselves as a team that could contend a lot more with a solid rotation, so it's it's interesting to see them in that market, but I think in a sense it does make sense for them a little bit. Yeah, I think that the Reds are, um, It's I definitely agree that they're the most um, intriguing team to see in that group, but I think that in terms of, um, you know, what direction they want, they want to take this offseason, I think that they don't really have a choice because they can't really rebuild any further than they already have been. I mean, the only real option to further rebuild would be to trade Joey Votto, which would be, which would just wouldn't be smart at all. You have to have he's he's your franchise player, and you want to still build around him. That's the whole reason that you traded other guys in the past uh, to rebuild around him. And obviously, they locked up uh, Eugenio Suarez at a very very team friendly price. Uh, and you are and the Reds already have a very rich um, a farm system, very rich in talent. Um, and in fact, if anything, they have a problem with having too many top prospects at the same position. I mean, just I mean, Nick Senzel, Nick Senzel, Jeter Downs, and Shed Long all are middle infielders, but obviously they can't all come up to the majors and make an impact. So the Reds have um, a great farm system to deal from, and um, they have. I mean, looking at the two guys, I think that they should um, re- restrain from trading. I would say Senzel and Taylor Trammell, who seem to be uh, the two their two most major league ready prospects. Um, but you put. You add Nick Senzel and Taylor Chamel into a lineup that was already very underrated last season, um, and then and if you trade guys like Jonathan India or like Downs and Long, like I mentioned, to go and acquire Kluber, now you're looking at a team where yes, uh, you are in a division that is going to be extremely competitive next season, but again, the Reds don't really have a choice. They re- they need they've been rebuilding for a long enough a long enough time where now they, it's time to transition into the phase of contending, and I think that. Even though it's not going to be easy with the Brewers, the Cubs, and the Cardinals in the division, when you when you put out when when you put out the best possible team on the baseball field that you can, you're you're going to you're going to win games and you're going to take um, the Brewers, Cardinals, and Cubs to the wire. So I think that it would be unfair to say that just because the 
Brewers, uh, Brewers and the Cubs have had the most recent success, that would um, in any way make it a bad idea for the Reds to try to be aggressive to uh, start to win now. Um, I'm going to agree with you too, but I don't think the Indians trade him right now. Because the original purpose for a trade of Kluber was to clear salary, and they already did that by trading Encarnacion and Alonso. I think if we're at the trade deadline and the Indians are just out of it, then they'll start, they'll trade him. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think necessarily that the Indians will trade him, but if um, I think that the Reds are one of those teams. The Reds and the Dodgers, um, I think, out of that group would have, you know, the most intriguing packages to offer Cleveland. And if I'm sitting back um, in the Cleveland front office and I get, you know, a really, really good package offered to me for uh, two years of Corey Kluber, um, that would obviously have to, I would assume, include a major league ready starting pitcher. It'd be hard to refuse um, because of the outstanding rotation depth that that, uh, Cleveland has currently and the fact that they still have a great position player core that they could still compete for a World Series tighter if they did trade Corey Kluber. But that being said, I do agree with you that as of now, it wouldn't make sense just to go and aggressively try to shop him because they did already accomplish their goal of uh, of moving salary. Yeah, and to find, kind of conclude that same idea, if, if the Indians were able to get a package uh, that included like a major league ready position player especially, um, you mentioned they have the rotation depth where they could kind of afford to lose Kluber. Obviously, uh, no team could seriously afford to lose a Cy Young contender, but um, if they were able to give him up and get a young guy um, that the Reds have that could fortify their lineup on a daily basis, um, that might be very beneficial to the Indians, whose lineup right now kind of is based on, um, you know, Francisco Lindor, Jose Ramirez, and beyond that, not a whole lot of, of offensive um, pop or, or uh, really solid players. So if they were able to get someone who could be um, a good, solid offensive contributor in their lineup uh, regularly, that might be something that would end up being beneficial for the Indians. I will say this, just like I said with the Encarnacion trade, I'm a Sox fan, I want Kluber out of the division. <laughs> Make it as easy as possible for the White Sox to win this division. <laughs> Who would you rather have moving forward, though, Kluber or Bauer? Because those are the two names that have really come up as the Indians are really considering trading these two guys. Uh, I'd say Bauer. I mean, he's he's younger by five years, which is pretty substantial. Um, by uh, most, um, by by some peripheral uh, statistics and some uh, sabermetrics, he was actually the better pitcher um, last season when compared to Kluber, and uh, he's also more controllable than Kluber. So I think that. Um, you know, obviously Corey Kluber has, I think, the better reputation at this point. You know, he has uh, Cy Young Awards under his belt, um, and he he has been not as good as Indians fans would like him to be in the postseason, but he's still been, you know, a reliable ace. Uh, but I think that, that Trevor Bauer has, Trevor Bauer's future is, is just so promising when you look at what he's already done and, um, you know, the opportunity to pitch in the AL Central um, and I mean, not, not to say that he will not have, um, you know, stats that are telling, but, uh, he is going to be able to pad them significantly facing, um, a, what should be a terrible Detroit Tigers lineup 19 times a year and, um, uh, Kansas City Royals lineup that 
is actually starting to get better, but still is not um, is not anywhere near above average. So, um, <laughs> uh, the White, a White Sox lineup that obviously um, you know Eloy Jimenez will boost it next year, but it's still got a lot of ways to go. So, um, I, I, w- I would say Bauer. Yeah, I would go with Bauer as well. And I mean, obviously, there's some people that are concerned about his kind of social media presence, which is a whole nother discussion to get into. I love but, that. Yeah, me too. As <laughs> as an owner, I I feel like that's something that you could really embrace because, you know, he's, while some of the things he says are pretty uh, questionable, he really draws attention to himself and he could draw attention to your team and, and really make, um, make a name for the team for himself. Um, and, you know, it kind of shows that he's confident. He believes in himself. And so with that factor, you know, he could also draw, draw attention away from other players who might need a little bit of, of space from attention to develop, stuff like that. So there's a lot of positive aspects to that presence, which I think contribute to the fact that, like Zorian mentioned, I think he also has a lot more potential for the future than, than Kluber. So I would absolutely take Bauer in a heartbeat. Um, I think that it, that it should be embraced. Um, you know, guys like Trevor Bauer, Alex Bregman, Noah Syndergaard on Twitter. I think that um, it definitely helps to uh, market the MLB more and uh, kind of to the newer generation of fans. So I think it's it's definitely a positive thing. So we've got four of four on Bauer over Kluber and three of four on Loving Bauer's social media. We haven't convinced Peyton of that yet, but... <laughs> I bought myself a Trevor Bauer uh, shirt, one of the ones he makes. I just love the dude, but that's not really relevant to this right now, as much Bauer as I love for him. America, baby. There are a few other moves I kind of want to mention and kind of briefly touch on before we move into some of the latter half of our segments here. So three kind of major moves. Murphy, Daniel Murphy, went to the Rockies on a two-year, $24 million deal. Matt Harvey, we already kind of mentioned this one, a one-year, $11 million deal. And Daniel Descalzo went to the Cubs on a two-year, $5 million deal. Yeah, it's interesting. The The Murphy signing for the Rockies is, is definitely something to be afraid of or to beware because Murphy obviously has shown his potential as a very solid offensive player. And to, to put him in Coors Field, you know, you can debate the effect that that has on players, but it obviously helps offensively and so it'll be interesting to see even though he's removed from some of his maybe best offensive years it'll be interesting to see what he can do there i mean with the with the descalzo trade also it's a good uh it's a good ad for the cubs because it gives them a little bit more infield flexibility um they they have you know another utility guy which fits right into the uh, philosophy of joe madden of moving guys around all over and with that deal, you know, you the Cubs, they've they've got some uh, some salary issues. So to get him on a deal like that is is pretty solid. Where they don't commit a whole lot financially to Descalzo, who has a, a lot of potential to contribute to them. I will say to kind of wrap up the hot stove portion as of right now. Uh, at the time of this taping, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but the Cardinals are targeting and are rumored to be pretty close with Andrew Miller on a one-year deal. So the NL Central is starting to become something to watch out for when you're talking about a three-team race in there again instead of just either the Cubs dominating or the Brewers sliding themselves in there. 
I was going to um, add another signing that um, at the time of this taping, uh, Corey Spangenberg uh, is rumored to be in agreement with the Brewers. Um, so kind of a, to not directly, but to counter what the Cubs did with uh, bringing in Daniel Descalso. Corey Spangenberg um, is a useful utility player, can play all around the diamond, and most notably um, had one of the best, um, some of the best numbers in the major leagues last season with uh, runners in scoring position. Um, so a nice little piece for the Brewers to add as they look to um, get over the hump and get into the World Series next season. Now moving forward, we haven't talked enough, nearly enough, about Manny Machado. And this week, he had his uh, three-team journey. He visited the White Sox on Monday, the Yankees on Wednesday, and today, Thursday, the night of our recording, he visited the Phillies. Now, there hasn't been much that's come out of any of these talks. We know they all met with him and stuff like that. They all He toured every city, all that fun stuff. The only thing that's really come out that I we kind of consider noteworthy at this point, and I have to get the New York opinion on this from Peyton. So New York Post put out an article, and it's not the only one like this, that said Machado has to sell himself to the Yankees. That highlighting really his World Series antics, his Johnny Hustle comments, and the like. So, Peyton, in your opinion, as a Yankees fan, are his antics really that big of a deal amongst New York fans? And should they be, whether they are or not? Um, they are, if you just scroll down Yankee Twitter. But they shouldn't be. Because the Yankees have had guys like Robson Cano. And on the other side of New York, you have Yohannes Cespedes, who dug out first a lot. And both of those teams were willing to give them big-time contracts. Um, on the dirty player side, the Yankees signed Alex Rodriguez to, a, to the largest contract in baseball at the time. So it was never a problem then. What makes this situation different is that these two incidents happened in the postseason. Um, Child admitted to being that type of player that he's not going to hustle with the Johnny Hustle comments. And he couldn't run out, run out a line drive that just missed game over the wall with this team down 2-1 in the World Series. So it's not just the hustling thing. It's that he couldn't do it at, on the biggest stage. Machado's still a generational talent. He's a platinum glove third baseman and above average shortstop that's proven he can have at a superstar level, and he's only 26. If a player plays at that level for 160 games without getting hurt, if he has to dog it out to avoid getting hurt, I don't care. That's fair, and I think that's that. That's a very common statement amongst a lot of fans is that, oh, we don't want him, we only want guys that hustle. The reality is... There's a lot of guys out there that don't hustle. The problem is Machado's came out on the national stage. And I think that's overblowing it a little bit. And I've said this before. You're not, as, as much as it sounds bad, you're not paying for his character. You're paying for the talent he's going to give you 150, 160 games out of the year. And that's what it comes down to when you're signing $30 million deals. Is, it's because he's putting the talent out there that's worth it. Um, another thing, there's... There's some of the near media that says that this is going to affect the young players. Aaron Judge is not going to turn to Milton Bradley just because Manny Machado's on the team. That's fair. And I think, again, it, 
I'm I'm convinced it's the sports writer's job to overblow things just a little bit. Maybe a lot of bit in this case. I will say none of these reports are coming out in Chicago, so Manny, if you're listening, on the off chance you're listening, you know, south side of Chicago would gladly welcome you. <laughs> but, we're going to move on from Machado and Harper at this time until hopefully we get a Christmas miracle and one of them signs. So, last podcast, we did a sort of rapid-fire segment that I don't have a name for yet, but I really like. So, we're going to do it again. I'm going to ask the crew five questions, and we're going to get their quick opinions on them. So, that being said, here is question one. Yes or no, we get a Christmas miracle, and either Harper or Machado signs before Christmas Day. Peyton? Machado with the Yankees. Ugh. Zorian? Machado will sign on the day of Christmas Eve with the Phillies. And Ryan. I'm a Zorian. Uh, He signs with the Phillies before Christmas. Sad. Question number two. The Mariners renamed their field T-Mobile Park. Good name, bad name, doesn't really matter to me. Peyton? It doesn't matter. Ryan? Anything's better than guaranteed rate field. Oh, (laughs) shut up. (laughs) And Zorian. Oh, I like Safeco better. Yeah, I think we can agree on that. Yeah. And you know what? Guaranteed right field, it ain't going to matter once the team's winning. I'll forget what the name of it is anyway. With their red down arrow logo. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Question number three, ignoring the comments from here on out. Mets GM Brody Van Wagenen says the Mets are the team to beat in the NL East. Is he right? Zorian? No, not even close. Um, I... The, the Braves are still the team to beat, and uh, they will be for a long time to come. Ryan? Uh, I think he might have a point with uh, with bringing on guys like Cano and Diaz that might energize some of the players they have that have already shown promise. And obviously they have the most dominant starter in the MLB right now in DeGrom, so I think he has a case. And Peyton? I close. Ooh. A little bit of that New York bias coming out, maybe? Who knows? <laughs> Question number four. This is actually an interesting story if you fans haven't seen it. So former Marlins president David Sampson was booted a party in Miami for a friend of his, Dan Liebetard. I believe he has an ESPN show. So Sampson got up to wish Liebetard a happy birthday. The crowd booed him, and his response was, keep booing me, you want to know why? 1.2 billion FU. Uh, obviously referring to the sale of the team that him and his father-in-law, Jeff Luria, decided to sell the Marlins at, especially after that new um, stadium. So he later went on to take back his comments, kind of, by saying it was a spur-of-the-moment reaction and that no one should question his, quote, affinity, love, and respect for Miami. Do you guys buy or sell this response? Peyton? I don't buy it at all. Ryan? I don't buy it. I mean, he has a point with $1.2 billion. What reason does he have to care about the city of Miami? And Zorian? I would say he was incredibly intoxicated, but uh, I don't buy it whatsoever. <laughs> You're probably right about that as well. Yeah. And question number five. Penny Marshall, director of A League of Their Own, passed away at the age of 75 this past week. So... What is the best baseball movie movie of all time? 
Peyton? Um, it's a tie between the Major League Series and Low Big League. Ryan? I say Moneyball. Uh, it brought attention to kind of the analytical aspect of the game. And, and Zorian? I love Moneyball, but as a Cubs fan, I got to go with Rookie of the Year. Oh, you're all wrong. It's Sandlot. But Moneyball is actually, if I were to actually pick, like, you know, a baseball-centric mu- movie, it has to be Moneyball. And baseball-centric in that it doesn't just highlight the kids playing baseball, as much as I love that. Mm-hmm. Kind of gets into, like, the front office aspect that a lot of people don't get into. Exactly. Yep. And, and that's what I think. Little Big League is also one I really like. Uh, I watched that when I was a, a little bit younger, and, you know, having a kid be the GM of a team is something that I think every one of us dreams of. Yeah. But You're Killing Miss Smalls will forever be the best line to come from a baseball movie, and you cannot fight me on that. I would agree. So we're going to head into the home stretch of our podcast right now. And just like last time, we had a lot of fans give us a lot of good questions. And once again, just like last time, if we don't cover yours here, we will cover them in the future because they are all great questions. So the first one here comes from Ian Howard at Ball Night Long. His question is about our opinion on the new DRC Plus metric. So for anyone who is unsure, DRC Plus is, as I said, a new metric, and it stands for Deserved Runs Created Plus. It was created by Baseball Prospectus, and its goal is to measure a hitter's expected contribution to all hitting events over the season. So... Their argument is that one weakness that comes from old metrics such as WOBA, OPS+, Weighted Runs Created+, is that these metrics treat all outcomes as equally driven by a player's skill. Just some more details about DRC+. It adjusts for more important variables such as park effects and the quality of the pitcher, among others. It's based off the same scale as any metrics you see with a plus at the end, meaning 100 is contributing league average number of runs. So, this is just a quick overview of the metric itself. You can look into it more. But, guys, let's answer the question. Let's get your opinions on it. I think it's still too soon to tell. Um, I mean, it's, it's obviously can be compared to WRC+, and there's some interesting discrepancies with uh, certain players. But I, I do like that um, it does take into account that, you know, things, outcomes such as walks and strikeouts are usually more telling of a player's skill um, than singles and triples, um, you know, there's a lot more ways you can hit a single than there are than there are ways you can strike out. So um, or walk. So I, I do think that it is it is um, it's a it's a step in the right direction to see a stat adjusted um, a little bit more than say WRC plus for example. Yeah, I I agree with that. I like that you know we're continuing to be able to account for those types of things that that Zorian mentioned. Um, I, the one thing I would say is we should caution against is making too many stats like that. Like you mentioned, the stats of the plus all have the same sort of scale. Um, so, you know, if they kind of replace each other and come consecutively, then it makes sense. But, um, it's kind of dangerous, I think, to to have too many of those stats where the scale is similar and people don't actually know what they're saying. That's a good point. I will agree with that. I think it's very, it's becoming very common nowadays to just throw out a number and know 100 is average so he's x percent better without really understanding okay what does that actually mean 
Yeah. Like, how did we get to this number? Why is this number better? And I think that's what we're yeah. still... We still have to, as, you know, a group who admittedly loves analytics on Diamond Digest, I think we still need to make sure we're doing our job and that we help people understand where are these numbers coming from? Um, yeah. Why is this number so important? What does this number tell? And I do like about um, DRC Plus is that they do have uncertainty bounds. So for any statisticians out there, think like a 95% confidence interval or something like that, a plus minus range, which I do like instead of just saying, hey, here's one number. They're saying, hey, he probably falls more inside this range, which I think helps to compare hitters a little bit more. But I also do think, like we were saying before, general consensus right now is going to be that we don't know. It's too soon to tell until we start seeing it a little bit more in action throughout the course of this coming season. But it'll be something interesting to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. So our next question comes from Tyler Connors at Tyler Connors HBS. In what way will the Minnesota Twins fill out their rotation? Will it be through depth or from trade or free agent signings? Uh, I'd actually like to see the Twins implement in uh, the opener strategy. And I don't think it's that far-fetched of a suggestion um, or prediction, I should say, um, considering their new manager is uh, Rocco Baldelli, who um, comes from the Rays organization. Um, I think that, you know, Jose Barrios um, and uh, Gibson um, will be a solid one-two punch. But, um, you know, Michael Pineda is coming off an injury. Jake Odorizzi has been all over the place. Um, and then what they have a plethora of options uh, at, in terms of the number five spot. Um, with perhaps Fernando Romero and Steven Gonzalez, the top candidates, but um, that's not a good enough rotation to, in my opinion, make the playoffs, let alone contend for a World Series title. Um, but if they were, you know, the back end of their of their bullpen is, is pretty underrated, I would say, with um, Trevor Hildenberger, uh, Trevor May, and uh, Taylor Rogers, um, who kind of emerged at the end of last season with, I believe, a, I want to say, 21-inning scoreless streak. Um, so you add, if they can add, um, an impact, uh, reliever that they could also kind of, um, use as an opener at times, or maybe use a guy like May who has that experience starting. So the whole feel of, you know, starting the game on the mound wouldn't be anything new to him. I think they would, I think that would be really successful for the twins. Uh, I'm going to, um, agree with Zorian here and say, I don't, I don't see the twins spending any money or they might make a trade, but I think they're going to go into either the depth, like a Stephen, is that his name? Stephen Gonzalez, or yeah. just use the opener strategy. Our next question is from our very own John Principe, at jprincipe8. What dark horse free agent is going to have the biggest impact next year? And by dark horse, he means not Machado, Harper, Corbin, and those types of guys. I'd say uh, Yusei Kikuchi. Um, he hasn't received a ton of attention um, even though I think that um, obviously it's hard to predict players coming from overseas, but in terms of the stuff that he possesses, I think he is a better pitcher than almost every single one of the starters available um, on the free agent market, including, I would argue, he has better stuff than guys like um, J.A. Happ, Lance Lynn, who just um, signed multi-year contracts uh, recently. So I think that he would, um, he's obviously a risk, but he would, he, he has the potential to be a high end number two starter slash 
kind of a low low lower tier ace um so kind of that that number two slash with the upside of a number one in a rotation um i mentioned it before and this is not really dark horse but charlie morton is a sneaky good sign for the race um because they were left for one real starter they get another veteran starter i mentioned this all before but um the Rays just can't live using the opener four times around the rotation. So that's going to be a, some, somewhat of a dark horse for the Rays. For me, in terms of a position player, I think Justin Board or the Angels is a move we haven't brought up yet. And it's something that, um, you know, it could kind of go either way, but it has a lot of potential for the Angels because Bohr, obviously he has the home run potential and he fits into a lineup that has a little bit more support around him than he had in, in 2018. And so, you know, um, being, being on a team, the angels are, are making additions that, that seem to make them a little bit more competitive for this year. And so Bohr might be, um, you know, he could benefit from a change of scenery, stuff like that, and have uh, a lot better season than people are probably expecting from him next year. And our final question of the night from Evan Alvarez at Hispanic Hoosier, also a Diamond Digest writer. Gentlemen, what are your favorite foods to get at the ballpark? I would say um, anytime you're at a baseball game, I feel like you have to have a hot dog. It's kind of a gimme. I'm just going to bank off of bank off of that. Wait, you put on these. What, what are you putting on these hot dogs here, gentlemen? Mustard and onions. Okay, okay. Ketchup. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, Peyton is not from Chicago. <laughs> I'm, uh... Yeah, I, I, I cannot stand ketchup. Um, I would, I'm more of a simpleton. I would just put uh, some nice grilled onions on there, and that's about it. I'm going to say, every time I go to Guaranteed Rate Field... Two hot dogs with onions, a Fanta, and a corn off the cob with butter and salt. Every time, no change, doesn't matter what time of game it is. Every time. Now I'm hungry. Now I miss the season. Yeah. Oh, good, good stuff, stuff, though, gentlemen. I, uh, I definitely, definitely got to get out there and uh, try some of those foods with a little more personality, though. I'll tell you what. Guaranteed right field might not have the same history as Wrigley Field, but there are some pretty good food options. I will say that. Alrighty. So, gentlemen, podcast number two is in the books. Just a little wrap-up comment here. Um, so, if you haven't seen on Twitter, we are doing a Fan Hall of Fame ballot where you, the fans, get to submit your choices for the Hall of Fame candidates this year. And we're going to compile them all. We're going to put together an article about it. And as you've seen, a bunch of lucky fans, as randomly decided, will get their ballots featured on our page for everyone to get to see. So, if you haven't gotten your ballot in, please do so. We're hoping to get them done by Friday or Saturday. Especially those guys right on the margin, you know, the Clemens, the Bonds, the Shillings. Make sure to get them in if you really want them in. 
So, with that, we have officially reached the end of Diamond Digest podcast episode number two. Thanks for joining us, and for Peyton Ellison, Zorian Schiffman, and Ryan Rudy, this is Jordan Lazowski signing off. Take care, everyone. Have a lovely day.